Gracious God, what a, a glorious setting we have now for uh, the preaching of your word. Uh, thank you for the beautiful uh, environment and decorations set up for this time and for Christmas coming up. Thank you for that wonderful offertory from Ruth and um, just the, the grandness of uh, your coming, uh, just the epic nature of that, God, um, just expressed so well. So I pray, God, as we get into your text, we would see it that way and our hearts would be moved and uh, we would just look forward more and more to being with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's turn to Mark chapter 13. If you're not there yet, that's where we're going to be. And after a couple Sundays for the Thanksgiving season, we come back today to our sermon series, preparing or being prepared for Jesus' return. And so we're resuming our time now in Mark chapter 13. And uh, how exciting it is uh, to be thinking of and studying and considering uh, the Lord's return, uh, even as we approach the celebration of his first advent, his first coming, the birth of the Savior. So I love how this is all kind of coming together this month and the next couple Sundays. So this section of Mark, along with Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke 21, is what's known as the Olivet Discourse, just to remind you. This takes place a few days before the Lord goes to the cross to be crucified. Okay? I believe we're on Tuesday. Um, the disciples ask the Lord when he's going to return, what are the signs of his coming, and he answers them in this discourse, okay, one of his final teachings to them. And we recall last time uh, that the sketch of the future that Jesus gives uh, in this first part of Mark chapter 13, verses uh, 1 through 13, it starts to become a little more detailed at verse 14. Those previously general depictions in verses 5 through 13, uh, which Jesus describes as birth pangs, right? The end is not yet. Um, these various things will happen on the way to a more specific time period and event. Those particular days which must happen before his coming, Jesus says, is unique to the history of the world, particularly in its awfulness, right? What happens smack in the middle of that time period is the abomination of desolation, which we saw before is the abhorrent desecration of the temple in Jerusalem when the Antichrist sets himself up to be the object of worship of all people. Okay, that seven-year period is called the, the tribulation or the great tribulation. Just doing a quick refresher here, right? And that's what we covered last time in part two of this series. So I refer those of you who weren't here for that uh, to listen on our church website. There was a lot of information packed into that sermon, and we went to Daniel chapter 9 and portions of Revelation and other scriptures. So um, I won't say any more about that uh, right now, but uh, just refer you to that sermon a few Sundays ago. As we're going to see today, it's clear from Jesus' teaching here in the Olivet Discourse that those apocalyptic days of the tribulation will occur before his return. The birth pangs, they're going to be at their most intense and frequent and painful, and this will lead to his second coming, the onset or the birth of this new kingdom, a new age in history is going to be born, if you will, uh, a new dispensation, right? The thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. So these things, once again, are being told to the disciples and to us so that we'd be always ready 
be found alert and eager for the return of our Lord. And that's, that's the principle, right? Our principle has been and will continue to be the next uh, Sunday or two that believers are exhorted to always be prepared for our Lord's return, persevering in faith and faithfulness to the end. In faith, continuing to believe, continuing to, to firm up our belief, our faith, our trust in Christ, and to be faithful, right? To have that play out in our, in our actual lives, um, faithful, faithfulness to God. So this is part three of being prepared for Jesus' return. And uh, as we get into our passage, I want to explain that we might consider, we might consider Jesus' return to be in two stages, okay, or two phases. Um, that first phase would be the, the rapture of the saints, okay? And the second phase is the, the glorious return to earth. And so that's the way we're kind of um, going to structure our sermon today. The introduction, I want to spend um, a little bit of time on the rapture. And, um, and then the second part, uh, our passage in verses 24 to 27, on the Lord's glorious return to earth. And the Lord only talks about the second phase of his return here in the Olivet Discourse. Um, but elsewhere in Scripture, the first phase is revealed to us. And where is that in Scripture anyway? I'm glad you asked. Oh, thank you, Roberta. We got our faithful Bible students here who, who know the answer. And so, um, so as we do our introduction and talk about the rapture, I, I want to just make sure we're clear on what the rapture is and then when is the rapture, okay? That's going to lead us into um, the, the glorious return to earth, all right? So what is the rapture? I mean, many people consider this to be a very ridiculous thing, okay? Um, mostly unbelievers and even some professing Christians who don't really know the Bible and they just, um, you know, just X out all these things that they consider to be odd. But the rapture is, thank you, Roberta, in First Thessalonians chapter 4, if you want to turn there for a moment. And um, we'll just briefly look at some of these passages. But First Thessalonians 4 is probably the main and most specific passage in the Bible that talks about the rapture. So 1 Thessalonians 4, and I'm just going to read starting in verse 13. Paul writing to the Thessalonian believers who are a little bit concerned, a little bit uh, sad about what's going to happen to those who have died in Christ, their fellow believers who have, um, who have passed away. So verse 13, Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, okay, who are dead, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Fallen asleep, uh, euphemism for death. Verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds 
to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so where do we get that concept or that word even of rapture? Well, it's in verse 17 there, as Paul says, we who are alive and remain, okay, believers who are here on the earth, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So that's where the word rapture comes from. That, that Greek word is harpazo. It means to snatch aggressively. Okay, to snatch up or to snatch away, to seize or seize upon, okay, to catch up or catch away, um, to pull or pluck. Like these are, uh, we get the English word harpoon uh, from this Greek word. Okay, so it means to take suddenly and vehemently. Right? The idea is to, to take by force with like a sudden swoop. Um, and usually it indicates a force that cannot be resisted. And the, the Latin translation of harpazo is rapturo, and that's, uh, that's where we get rapture. It's the same meaning, to snatch suddenly or aggressively. And so that's, that's why we call this phase of the Lord's coming the rapture, right? It's transliteration from that Latin word rapturo. So at the rapture, Christians who are alive are physically removed from the earth. Together with all those who are dead in Christ... And we all get our immortal, glorified, resurrected bodies. Okay? And um, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, that's another uh, passage that tells us about the rapture. 1 Corinthians 15, as some of us are aware, this is the, what's known as the resurrection chapter. But the, towards the end there in verse 50, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, Paul again writing, he says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. And this is something that has not yet been revealed, something that was kind of shrouded until now, right? And so that's what a mystery is. Uh, It's being revealed right now. He says, We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, which he also mentioned in First Thessalonians that I just read, right? For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And something that's imperishable and immortal is going to last forever. And so this is a... a um, a reference to our resurrected, glorified bodies. And so it's going to change in an instant. So uh, I just want to mention just a, a couple maybe previews uh, of the rapture. And we know from the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 5, Enoch, right, was one who was just taken up to God. And then uh, Elijah, of course, in um, 2 Kings chapter 2, um, you know, Elisha is just they're there and, and he just gets swept up um, into, into heaven. And so neither of those men died. You remember Genesis chapter 5, it, it lists that um, genealogy and uh, the descendants, and he died, and he died, he lived this many years, and he died, but Enoch was just taken up. And so um, similarly, Elijah was just taken up into heaven. Um, in the New Testament, okay, these are not exactly the same thing, 
But the same word is used, that Greek word harpazo, in Acts 8, verse 39. Acts 8, verse 39. Philip, after he evangelizes the Ethiopian eunuch, right? And he takes him and, and he baptizes him. Right after he baptizes him, the Spirit of the Lord snatched him away. Harpazo, that's the word. He ended up in Azotus, okay, which was a town called Azotus, which is 20 miles north of where they were in Gaza, when, where he baptized this eunuch guy. And so um, he found himself in Azota, and then he just starts evangelizing again. It's pretty wonderful. Acts chapter 8, great story there. So it's not exactly the same thing, but somehow he was taken up and transported. Okay? Um, and then the other place is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 and 4. Uh, the apostle Paul himself, that miraculous visit to heaven, he was caught up, is the way he puts it um, there in 2 Corinthians, into heaven, right, into paradise. And that's where he heard and saw things that he was not even allowed to speak about. He says, not permitted to speak of. Um, and this led to him receiving that thorn in the flesh, right, given so that he would not, what, exalt himself. Okay, so amazing was this revelation and this experience that um, he was given some thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, so that he would not exalt himself. Okay? So um, the only other thing I want to mention here is Matthew 27, okay, verses 52 and 53, after Jesus is crucified, after he breathes his last, and uh, he dies on the cross. You remember the veil uh, of the temple was torn in two, um, and then there was a great earthquake. And then it says the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints were raised. And they appeared to some in Jerusalem, in the holy city, perhaps to establish the reality of the miracle, but probably in their glorified bodies. And then we don't hear anything else of them. You know, I think they were just taken up uh, to heaven, right? Maybe in just another hint, another preview of rapture. Okay, so um, that's what the rapture is. All Christians who believe the Bible believe in a rapture. But not all Christians agree on the timing of the rapture, right? So that's the second question. When is the, the rapture, this first phase of Christ's return? Um, so one thing that's very clear, once again, is that we know that the tribulation, right, the great tribulation period, it happens before Jesus comes to earth. Okay, therefore, the rapture must occur either before that tribulation Okay, also known as pre-tribulation. So people who believe that are called pre-tribbers, right? And then um, it could happen at the midpoint of the tribulation. Tribulation is seven years, right? So the midpoint would be around three and a half years in. So some people believe in that, that, that he, um, the, the rapture happens three and a half years into that time. And then the post-tribbers, right, at the end of the tribulation. They believe that um, the, the rapture happens with Christ's return to earth. So just very briefly, my belief is pre-tribulation and just a quick couple reasons why. First of all, the, the rapture passages, uh, the ones that I just shared with you, Jesus takes up believers uh, with him. He gathers them up, right? In the return passages, uh, he comes down with believers. And we'd have to look at that. I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time with that, but um, that's, that's the case. Uh, the second reason is, the church is not mentioned in Revelation chapters 6 through 19, which last week uh, or last time when I gave you the outline of, of um, Revelation, that is descriptive of the tribulation. 
that whole chunk of Revelation is talking about the tribulation. And the church is not mentioned. As soon as those judgments, uh, the seal judgments, begin in Revelation chapter 6, there's no mention of the church until the end of chapter 19 when we return with him. So to me that makes sense. Uh, God's wrath is being poured out on unbelievers who have rejected him and not onto his bride, the church. Um, so in the rapture passages, there's no judgment that's being emphasized in, in, in any of those. But in Christ's return to earth, clearly he comes with judgment. We're going to see that um, a little bit later. So the last reason is this. Um, it just seems an odd scenario if the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation, the post-tribs. Um, it doesn't make sense for the Lord to remove the church from the earth and then just immediately come back down to earth with with us or with them. And uh, John 14, uh, some of us don't consider that really to be a, a rapture passage, although a lot of people do. John 14, maybe it's kind of a first little hint of the rapture. Okay? Like I told you before, a lot of times Jesus introduces something in his teaching to the disciples, and then you read the rest of the epistles in the New Testament, and, and things get revealed or expanded upon, and more information is given. So John chapter 14, uh, that's where... Jesus says, in my Father's house there are many mansions. And in verse 2 there, he says, If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And then in verse 3, he says this, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he's going to come to gather believers, the church to himself, to bring them to heaven where he is. And he doesn't indicate that it's to bring them back down to, to earth. So I don't consider this to be a, a hill to die on uh, when the, uh, the, the rapture is. But um, for me, in my study of this, uh, pre-tribulation rapture is where I land and where, what I believe. And some good and godly men disagree with me. And then some better men agree with me. So, uh, so that's uh, phase one, so to speak, of Jesus' return, the rapture of the saints. And it could happen at any time, right? There's no sign or occasion or anything that, that must come before this incredible event. And that's why we, we uh, understand it to be imminent, right? I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T. Uh, meaning that it's ready to take place. It could happen at any moment, even this moment, like right now. And some of us are like, Lord, bring it on right now. Take us. But um, it's going to happen, and it's, uh, it's something that, that nothing else needs to happen according to Scripture before it happens. So with the church up in heaven with the Lord, with our understanding of end times and our, our belief and our study, uh, then the seven-year tribulation period is going to happen, right? Daniel's 70th week that we talked about from Daniel chapter 9. And... Um, that's what Jesus has been explaining to the Twelve, okay, about the tribulation. He doesn't mention the rapture. But in the Olivet Discourse, he's explaining to the Twelve here, disciples, which brings us to our text this morning in Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to 27. And this is the glorious return to earth. The second coming is coming. So if you can uh, st stand right now, I'm going to read verses 24 to 27 of Mark 13. And this is what Jesus says next. 
verse 24 of Mark 13. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Please be seated. And so, the glorious return to earth. And once again, parallel passages, the Olivet Discourse is found in Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke 21. But in those days, it says here in Mark, okay? And again, this should be clear by now. Jesus has just described those days in the previous verses, okay, verses 14 to 23, particularly, once again, that, that awful time period, the abomination of desolation that takes place, verse 19. And, um, well, verse 19 says, those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation and never will. It's after that tribulation that the next big thing will happen, which Jesus foretells next in the, in the Olivet Discourse. So the birth pangs are intensifying, more and more frequent at its worst, just before the Lord returns. That's when the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Matthew 24, 27. Listen to this. Um, Olivet Discourse as well, right? 24, 27 of Matthew. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Okay, Luke 21. uh, This is the way Luke's account reads. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among the nations. In perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It's going to be a frightening, frightening time. So some utterly remarkable things are going to occur shortly before the Lord's glorious return. The sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. So if we go back to the Old Testament, uh, we see some prophecies way back when of, of this happening. For example, Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13, this is in the context of prophetic judgment of Babylon. Yeah, Isaiah writes of verse 6, the day of the Lord, destruction from the Almighty. And then in verse 9, right before verse 10, he says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and he will exterminate sinners from it. Okay, this speaks um, to a more ultimate judgment of Babylon, okay, which, um, as we understand it now, it's not, um, the, the near fulfillment in Isaiah was, was then, but now it's the entire world system of political, economic, and religious idolatry. And this is Antichrist's future empire during the last half of the tribulation. He's ruling the world. Okay, so verse 10 in Isaiah 13, it starts to describe these supernatural cosmic things that are going to accompany the the worldwide judgment. Okay, verse 11, he says, Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Right? That's when after he says the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. In verse 13, therefore I will make the heavens tremble 
and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Um, another, there's, there's, there's many of them, but Joel chapter 2 uh, is another place. Uh, you might want to jot that down. Joel 2 verse 10 and 31. And Joel is probably writing around the late 700s B.C. Okay, this is before the exile, uh, most likely during King Joash's reign. This is similar to the time and writing of Hosea and Amos, uh, a couple other the, the minor prophets. Okay, the theme of Joel is the day of the Lord. Okay, it's a message of judgment for the most part. Um, towards the end, he talks about restoration as well. But uh, the day of the Lord, that's kind of a running theme throughout Joel. And in uh, 2 verse 10, he, he writes, Before them, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. Okay, verse 11 goes on saying, The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And then, when you go to verses 30 and 31 of that same chapter, Joel 2, he writes, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Okay, this, is, this is judgment. This is talking about tribulation, great tribulation. And in chapter 3, he's, he's calling the, the nations to repentance, facing God's coming judgment. And the signs of his coming include the sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Okay, that's Joel 3, 9 through 17. So uh, lastly, in the New Testament, we see... And I told you, Revelation 6 through 19 is talking about this tribulation period. Revelation 6, verse 12, John, the Apostle John writing, he says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. So there's some debate whether these signs are, are meant to be understood literally or figuratively. Some people think this is uh, all this stuff that's that's um, this language is supposed to be symbolic of like you know just political upheaval and just general disarray and international just uh, disturbance uh, in the world. But I take Jesus's words here plainly, and just even the words of the prophets uh, literally. Uh, I think it's talking about cosmic catastrophes. Hey, these irregular phenomena in the physical universe that will occur. Hey, I don't know scientifically how all that works, but God certainly does. Obviously, he's able to do and order miracles and supernatural events to happen. Hey, it's not my universe. It's his universe. He can order it and do the supernatural things. Um, the very definition of uh, a miracle, God intervening into the normal scientific, physical ways of the, the world. So um, David McKenna agrees with that. He says, when the sign of his coming is given, it will defy scientists and pseudoscientists, astronomers and astrologers, but there's, there will be no way to misread its purpose. Okay, this is all signaling the second coming of Christ. And so verse 25 in, in Mark chapter 13 continues. And he says, and the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers that, that are in the heavens will be shaken. Okay, the, the stars will be falling. I mean, physically, scientifically, what does that look like? What, what is that going to be? Well, Isaiah 34, verse 4, 
Again, this is the context of God's pronouncement of judgment on the wicked nations of the earth. Isaiah writes, And all the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away, as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the fig tree. Isaiah 34, 4. And, and this gets fulfilled, again, in Revelation. Right? Revelation chapter 6, uh, the sixth seal judgment. I read uh, verse 12 before. Verse 13 and 14 of Revelation 6. It says, And the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Hey, um, this is just, uh, I mean, some folks, some of you were, were here during the, the 1994, right, Northridge earthquake, um, and just we hear of things that have happened in the world and just destruction, right, very tragic, difficult, um, destructive things, but this is like nothing else. Luke 21, once again, all of that discourse in, in Luke's, gospel Luke 21 verse 26 it's a truly frightening time to be living he says again there men will be fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken okay so putting that together with revelation chapter 6 that sixth seal judgment it continues it could quite possibly involve the most intense massive destructive meteor shower ever Whatever that supernatural shaking is that's happening in the heavens, okay, we might call it a a sky quake, right? The ones on earth are called earthquakes. That one's going to be a sky quake, okay? There's that added disaster of this incredible thing on earth where the continental plates are being relocated. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places, okay? This is unprecedented disaster. So, verse 26, then... Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds. In the long-awaited, glorious return, come thou long-expected Jesus. Right? It's going to follow those unique events at the end of the tribulation. And those are the signs. And uh, this is now phase two, Jesus returning physically, bodily, back down to the earth. And so... um, if I can just illustrate that, uh, I'm just reminded of my eighth grade algebra teacher. His name was Mr. Hornberger. He was a short, stocky, slightly older man. He had a, a funny, nasally voice and a crooked nose. And uh, we gave this man a, a very hard time. Somehow, he was the one teacher who all the kids uh, just did not treat very well. And that included the, the normally obedient and just, you know, uh, well-behaved kids. And so sometimes Mr. Hornberger would leave the classroom, and he'd put up a math problem on the board and tell us to do it while he stepped out. Okay? And, of course, that's when the, the low-key fooling around turned into chaos, right? And uh, maybe some of you have had that experience in um, your younger years. But paper airplanes made and thrown, right? spitballs launched, pins on the teacher's seat, Jostling, joking around, the class comedian goes up to the front and starts imitating Mr. Hornberger, right? And the other thing, though, about Mr. Hornberger was that he wore these shoes, these shoes that click-clacked up and down the hallways of the school. 
So when we heard that click-clack approaching, uh, it was time to straighten up and act like we were doing the problem that he assigned, right, that he, before he left the classroom. But when he come back, there'd be general silence, uh, the din of quietness that comes over a, a, a rowdy middle school bunch, along with, as he entered in, the debris, right, the debris of the paper airplanes on the floor and spitballs on the chalkboard, um, pins on his seat, and uh, the redness of faces that are trying very hard to hold it in, right? Trying not to burst out laughing. So this would happen time and again. But one day, Mr. Hornberger wore different shoes. I don't know if it was intentional or not, ones that were not so loud. And when he came back suddenly to the classroom that day, there was no warning. We were, we were busted, right? So similarly, this parallels maybe the, the two phases or two stages of Jesus' return. The rapture is suddenly, it's going to happen in an instant, okay, like silently pouncing into a classroom. The other, the glorious return to earth, is preceded by signs that can be anticipated, like Mr. Hornberger's clackety shoes. And uh, I want to say this because some of you are wondering. Okay? This illustration, like almost all illustrations, falls short at the point of this. When Jesus does return to the earth, phase two, He says no one knows the exact day or exact hour, right? Mark that we're going to get to that next week. Mark 13, verse 32. So phase two is going to be sudden as well. But there's going to be signs, which we just talked about, right? The tribulation, the abomination of desolation, these supernatural cosmic disturbances. There's going to be signs before they see him coming on the clouds. But verse 29, which we'll also get to next week, says, Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Okay? So hopefully that's, that's all understood. Um, but anyway, moving on in Mark 13 here, he says, And everyone will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Uh, as we at Faith Bible Church, no, Jesus uses that, that title, the Son of Man, most frequently for himself throughout the Gospels, throughout his ministry, using it again here in the context of answering the disciples' questions of what are the signs of your return? When are you coming? It's most obvious that Jesus clearly identifies himself with the Son of Man who, where do we get that phrase anyway, right? It's from Daniel. Daniel wrote of in his vision in Daniel 7, verse 13. He writes, back then, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so that brings us to, or brings to mind other scriptures too, right, of Jesus' return. For example, Acts chapter 1, Acts 1 verses 9 through 11, after Jesus appears and he's, he's um, telling the disciples once again that they need to go and spread the gospel uh, throughout all the earth, right? Um, verse 9, it says, after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And I I believe this is two angels in the form of men. And they also said, verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And so... um, it mentions a cloud there in other scriptures, Revelation 19, which we'll read in a moment. But back to Mark chapter 13, it says, coming in clouds. Um, most likely, these are not just ordinary clouds. It could be the presence of physical, natural clouds. But I believe this is clouds of glory, indicating the divine, glorious presence and splendor of God, which reveals and yet still conceals the presence of Yahweh. And I like what um, James Brooks says here. He says, The same one who humbly ministered on earth, and this is Mark 10, verse 45, the Son of Man, right, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, who humbly ministered on earth, the same one who suffered and died, Mark 8, 31, the Son of Man is going to suffer and die, will return with great power and glory. That same Jesus, that same Son of Man. And with great power and glory, um, this is not just one who returns with and possesses power and glory, but one who comes with a visible display of it. Okay? The Shekinah glory, that power that, that um, just exercises divine authority, and it's, it's clothed with heavenly supernatural glory. Okay? So uh, as in Revelation chapter 19, and uh, we all know this and love this uh, passage, but I'm just going to just going to read it again. Revelation 19. This is the end of the tribulation in the scheme of the, the book of Revelation. And verse 11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called <laughs> Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So I said in, in, in the return passages, the, the glorious return to earth passages, there's, there's always judgment that is, is emphasized. Okay, Jesus came the first time to save and to rescue and to forgive. When he comes next, it's going to be to judge. It's going to be to judge. And so everyone is going to see this. Everyone, the glorious second coming of Christ. Matthew 24, again, parallel passage from Mark 13. Matthew 24, 30, there's going to be mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, weeping. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, right? The clearest sign is himself, him coming. And then, it says, Matthew 24, 30, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see 
the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This, this weeping, this grieving, this sorrow, this mourning is due to unbelievers' realization that they face immediate judgment. And what else are you going to think when you see a man coming down from heaven, from the sky? Um, their doomsday has arrived. They're going to be taken out. Uh, Revelation 1, verse 7, which uh, was part of the scripture that Tony read to us this morning. Okay, verse 7 is like the theme verse of the book of Revelation. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, right? Quoting Daniel seven thirteen, And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. And even those who pierced him, uh, I think that's referring to Zechariah 12, verse 10. And it's talking about a reference to Israel who had rejected Messiah the first time. Um, I think their tears are going to be ones of repentance at this time because this is God's purpose, right? Part of the purpose of the tribulation. One of the main purposes of the tribulation is to call and bring Israel back to himself. It's going to lead into the millennial kingdom. But then it says the tribes of the earth will be weeping due to their, and this is due to their guilt over sin and fear of the judgment that's arrived. Okay, so verse 27, it says in Mark 13, And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect. So a question comes up in my mind. Who comes with the Lord in his return? Um, Some of the angels will be with him, according to this, whom he's going to send forth ostensibly to gather together his elect. But um, I just read to you Revelation 19, right? Verse 14. It says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So you put that together with Mark 13, 27. God is going to gather together his elect. Um, I think that's, that's all believers of all time. Okay? The church uh, who's, who've been raptured, okay? the tribulation saints, those who died uh, during that tribulation period, and Old Testament believers also. And also even angels are, are coming down with him. And so um, some have said that these armies um, in heaven who come down include all of these groups, and they, they don't come to, to battle with Jesus. Jesus is going to, he doesn't even need uh, help. He doesn't need, like, uh, you know, weapons. It, it's, it's, his, it's his word that's going to judge, and people are going to, to die and, and, and end up in judgment in hell. But um, they come to reign with him after his enemies are defeated. And so some people think that his elect in Mark 13, 27 refers only to tribulation believers, um, but I think it's, it's believers of all ages, all throughout history, Old Testament saints, church-age saints, and the tribulation martyrs. So um, the end of verse 27 says there, from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. It's from every part of the world. Okay, north, south, east, west, wherever you look, wherever, every which way, every point from which the winds come and winds blow, it's like saying from the four corners of the earth, right? Um, it's literally from earth's extremity to heaven's extremity, the uttermost part to the uttermost part. In other words, none of God's elect will be left out. That's what I get out of that, okay? Uh, he's got them all included. 
all of them covered, all of them going to be with him. They will all be gathered together around their central rallying point, which is the glorious Son of Man, Son of God himself. So as we um, just kind of wrap up this, this point of Jesus' glorious return, I want to mention some uh, important events that accompany or that are connected to Jesus' return, okay, to finalize our, our message here for today. And so some important events connected with Christ's second coming. Um, and so the first thing is the, the judgment, right? The judgment of the sheep and goats. And we're not going to go in there, uh, but Matthew 25, which is part of the Olivet Discourse, the end of it actually, Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. Uh, this is the judgment. And, you know, when you read Revelation, those chapters in 6 through 19, interestingly, and also very sadly, tragically, literally billions of people are going to perish during the tribulation. Okay, some have kind of added up all the statistics, and they come up with approximately 80% of the world's population are, are going to die. Yet, at the end of it, there's still going to be untold millions of people still alive, and they are going to be judged by the Lord. And Jesus is going to judge whether they are able to enter into his kingdom or not. Okay, so, so when the rapture happens before the tribulation, the church, all believers are going to be taken up, seized to be with the Lord. So entering into the, the tribulation period, it seems that there's going to be most, if not all, unbelievers entering that seven-year period, okay? And then at the end of the seven-year period, when Jesus returns and he's, he's judging unbelievers, um, basically all the unbelievers are, are going to be taken out, right? And, and so entering into the millennial kingdom is going to be all believers. So maybe we'll talk about that in our excursus a little bit more. But anyway, Matthew 25 is the sheep and the goat's judgment, and um, believers are going to be allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom, true believers, the sheep, okay, the, the righteous ones, the ones who have been made righteous and follow their shepherd. And the fakers, the pretenders, the unbelievers, the wicked, the goats, they will not be allowed entrance. They're going to be judged. And so uh, let me just, Matthew 24, uh, if you want to turn there with me just for a brief moment. Matthew 24 Verses 37 to 41. When I was a new Christian, I I thought this was talking about the the rapture when I first started hearing about the rapture. But um, I believe this is talking about the the judgment before the millennial kingdom. Matthew 24, starting verse 37. And Jesus says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood... They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. So my interpretation of that taken there, instead of the rapture and taken to Jesus in, in, in heaven, is informed by verse 39 again. Jesus says, They did not understand 
until the flood came and took them all away. And so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So that, that taking of, of the, the people who died in the flood, they were, they were being judged after 120 years of, of Noah building and preaching and um, until that day came. Uh, when it came, they were, they were judged. They were taken away. They were, they were killed in the flood. And so it will be just like that when Jesus comes. There will be two people out there. One is going to be judged. One will be left, left for the millennial kingdom. Okay? So that's my explanation there. And um, let me just add to that really quickly that, uh, you know, Jesus' warnings about judgment are out of his love for sinners, right? Um, like, we, this is the reason why he's, he's telling us these signs, right? These signs are coming so that we would make sure we are in him, we're believing in him, and that we would, if we're not, that we would repent immediately because no one knows. Okay, the rapture, the tribulation, the Son of Man coming, nobody knows when that's coming. So it's, uh, he ends the Olivet Discourse with this loving warning. He wants everyone to know he's coming and so that everyone will be ready when it happens. Okay? So second thing is, along with the judgment of living Gentiles and Jews, um, is this, the resurrection and rewarding of, of Old Testament saints and tribulation saints. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 2 speaking particularly of Old Testament believers. Daniel 12, verse 2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. And this is souls of Old Testament believers. They're with God in heaven, but in the future they will rise to resurrection life. Okay? Um, So those of the dust of the ground will awake. And then it says in verse 2, But the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. These are unbelieving Israelites. And then uh, verse 13 of Daniel 12 says this, Go your way to the end, and then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion. And that's uh, inheritance or reward at the end of the age. That's how Daniel 12 ends. And so um, resurrection and rewarding of Old Testament saints. Also for, for tribulation saints, uh, Revelation chapter 20 it says in verse 4, and you remember Revelation 20 is uh, starting to talk about the millennial kingdom, right? Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, so this is specifically talking about saints who died and were martyred in the, the tribulation. Not necessarily all of them were literally beheaded. They were executed, though. They were, they were killed. And verse 5 says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. And then verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So note that resurrection, reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. He calls them blessed. Okay, so this is part of resurrection reward um, of, of the tribulation saints. So that's part of what's going to, that is connected with Jesus' 
glorious return to earth. Um, they're going to receive their resurrected bodies and rewarded according to their works. So uh, third thing is the binding of Satan. That's also going to accompany Jesus' return. Uh, also in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he, this angel, laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So when Jesus returns to earth, an angel is going to throw Satan into this abyss, a place of temporary imprisonment where he's going to be completely restricted. He's not going to have any power or influence on the earth um, and the people of the earth during the, the millennial kingdom, that thousand years when King Jesus is reigning. So that's part of what's happening. The last thing is this, the establishment of the messianic kingdom, the establishment of Jesus' kingdom. Daniel 12 again, um, at the end of Daniel chapter 12, the end of the book of Daniel, it suggests that there's going to be a 75-day period between Jesus' return to earth and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. It seems that there's a couple months' time. That's when the administration of the kingdom is established. Borders of the nations are defined, and just um, other things take place. So once all that happens, Christ's enemies are removed and judged. All the necessary resurrections and judgments are completed. The long-awaited millennial kingdom period, or dispensation, if you will, is going to start. As the tribulation period is brought to fruition, many of the Old Testament promises to Israel the millennial kingdom is when they're going to be completely fulfilled. Okay, all those great unconditional covenants of God that he made to his people, every promise that God made are going to be accomplished to Israel in particular and Gentiles in general. They're all going to enjoy the blessings of Christ's rule. And it's going to be a glorious, glorious day. So in our final sermon in the series, which is two weeks from now, next, next uh, Sunday we're going to finish uh, Mark chapter 13. Um, and then part four, four or five, part five is going to be two weeks from now, which is um, just our eschatology excursus. And we're going to cover some of the millennial kingdom and tie up any loose ends that uh, we left out, do our best to do that. But as we conclude here, but um, let me pray, and uh, we'll, we'll be singing before the throne of God above, but let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the revelation of your word. Um, the, it's, it's so beautiful and wonderful and glorious how all of Scripture um, is connected and fits together. And you have revealed to us even things that you want us to know uh, about the future. And so thank you that uh, we got to focus today specifically on our dear Lord's return, that the second coming is coming. You came, you promised the first time that you would come, and you did. And so your promise to come the second time will be fulfilled, and you've given us some clues uh, even as to what will happen before all of that. So thank you, God, that uh, we are part of this uh, grand and glorious plan that you have, and uh, we just ask your help for us uh, to continue to be faithful to you, even more so, God, to excel still more as we, as we hear these uh, wonderful truths. 
So as we have our, our communion time, God, I pray it's um, a blessing for each of us uh, that would grow us uh, in closer communion with you and also into tighter fellowship and unity with one another. And we pray these things in our blessed Savior's name. Amen.